Hello, folks. How's everybody doing this week? So, right, we have a wonderful faith. And our faith corresponds to reality in every sense of the term. And we talked last week a little bit about how the gospel is not a suicide pact. All right. In other words, for you to be a Christian and for you to be a forgiving person, for you to have someone sin against you and then you forgive them as well it should be, uh, doesn't mean that you have to let that person walk all over you. you know, I kind of gave the crass example of you know, somebody that would uh, rape my daughter. I could forgive that person, but yet I would still want them to have the temporal punishments for that, both for their sake... And for, for the sake of my daughter. And I, and I certainly wouldn't put them in charge uh, of my household. Okay, so when it comes to pastors, folks, uh, being a pastor is something that requires a great deal of trust. And if you don't have that trust, uh, you're just going to have a hard time. That's, that's really where I, I struggled when I was in ministry, was earning trust with people because I did stupid things. And I said stupid things, and I broke down trust. And when people can't trust you, you just, in that position, you're just going to go nowhere fast. Okay. So, so the gospel is not a suicide pact. And the other thing we want to talk about this week is the effects of sin and why, why sin is such a big deal. While you failing is, is not really an option as a Christian. Now you're going to fail, but is that okay? No, it's not okay. You need to repent of that sin, believe that it's forgiven and want to do better next time. Now, are we ever going to perfect that in this life? No, we're not. But that's no excuse for you walking around going, well, I'm just a miserable sinner, and that's all I'm going to do is sin and just destroy people's lives. Because when you're talking about sin, one, when you sin, you hurt somebody. Second of all, it displeases God. Now, I know we as Lutherans, I as a Lutheran, my Lutheran friends, we don't like to talk about... Uh, us doing things that displease God. We like to talk about how we have God's eternal love and pleasure, and that is true. But you have to think of it again. You have to think of it, this makes perfect sense to me. You have to think of it in the sense of God as Father and not just judge. Because I'm a father, I, I love my children eternally. They They have my eternal pleasure. But if my daughter... Uh, gets zeros for the week at school that displeases me <laughs> okay does she still have my eternal love and pleasure of course she does but for the moment <laughs> she's got my temporal displeasure maybe that's that's the way to put it all right so so we we hurt people with our uh our sin by the way uh matthew garnett here welcome to in layman's terms forgot to say all that check us out layman's terms radio.org on facebook you can send me a friend request matthew garnett is the name you want to search for, and we're also on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash layman's terms radio. Uh, send me a, a private message or an email with any questions or comments. Uh, our email address is discussion at layman's terms radio.org. Okay, so, so three things you do with your sin you hurt others, you hurt God, you hurt yourself. Maybe four things you hurt others, you hurt God. You hurt yourself. Sin is damaging to to yourself just in, in practical ways because God has put these temporal punishments in place 
And if you do a murder, you're going to jail, and that's not going to be good times for you. Um, but it's also damaging to your soul. Uh, you know, prolonged sin, what uh, what our confessions call uh, manifest sin. You know, uh, you know, Epicurean delusion is what it kind of how it details it. These sorts of things can can lead to the loss of, of faith. All right, now I know there's some disagreement on, on that point, but I, I think that there's just so many places that the scriptures warn about apostasy uh, that that we have to have some sort of we have to s- somehow take those those passages seriously. And again, I've worked with teenagers enough. You know, we talked about uh, people uh, with suicidal thoughts and addictions a couple weeks ago. Uh, those people. When they fall off the wagon with their addiction, sometimes they never come back. And sad. It's very, very sad. But their sin just simply leads them away from the church. And there is no salvation uh, outside of God's church. Now, that may sound Catholic, uh, but it's not. It's Christian. The, the, the place where faith is created and sustained, and I'm kind of going off on a trail here, but this is important. The place where faith is created and sustained is in the church because that's where you hear God's word and you receive his sacraments. And these are the things that are going to sustain your faith. Without that, you will lose your faith. You'll you'll apostatize. It's just as simple as that. Now, if you're not a Lutheran and you don't understand that, uh, basically what it boils down to is if you stop going to church, you're, you're going to lose your faith. And yes, so if you have questions about that, send them to me. Finally, your sin is something that crucified Jesus. St. Peter giving his famous sermons in Act, sermon in Acts says, This same Jesus whom you crucified. Now, he was specifically talking to the, the Jewish people there, but it's more than likely nobody in that crowd necessarily. There might have been some of the, the Jewish officials who were uh, responsible for having Jesus crucified there. That's possible. Uh, but but those words are to us too. We crucified Christ with our sin. Our sin is serious. It hurts people, and we don't have an option to continue in it. Yet we're not going to really hear Tolian in this sermon. By the way, that's what we're doing this week. We're going to review, like I said last week, we're going to do a, a full review on a on a Tolian Chavichin sermon because Tolian's got his new Tolian.net. Uh, website up where he is preaching the same false doctrine that got himself in trouble before. Again, it took me a, a while to see this. I didn't understand it. And you know, was new to long gospel. You know, excuses, excuses, excuses. But more than anything, I probably just refused to see that it, that his preaching was problematic. Others were pointing this out, and they were Calvinists. I thought, oh well, they're just you know, they're just the frozen chosen Calvinists who don't who don't get the gospel. Well, as it turns out, a lot of them were right. Uh, maybe their, their solutions to correct Chavidjan's preaching was was improper. <laughs> uh, but but at any rate, we're going to walk through this. because. And again, the reason, friends, I've spent almost the whole year <laughs> talking about uh, things like postmodernism and, and antinomianism is because these are things that are going to... Uh, they're, they're very subtle, uh, yet they're very dangerous. And they're going to lead you to not a, a, to a bad place, and it's a, it's a false teaching that particularly my Lutheran brother brethren have trouble picking up on. And in fact, they just 
many of them just don't see what the problem is with Chavichin's preaching. I'm going to try to lay that out here as best I can. So we're going to walk through this fairly slowly, uh, and hopefully it'll be something that will clear this up and be a, a, an opportunity for you, you to learn about this thing, these sorts of things. Okay, so enough of that. No more gilding the lily. We've got to get to it here. We're going to listen to a sermon from Tolian Chivichin on Romans 6 and then get into one on Romans 7. We'll see how much we can get done this time and we'll reserve the rest for next time. God and his grace. But this morning I want to look at Romans chapter 6. We finished chapter 5 last week. This is chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. So Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, reading down through verse 14. Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Okay, I'm not going to let him read this because he basically reads verses 1 through 14, which I'm going to read for you, but then I'm also going to read the remainder of the passage. Now, I listen to these two sermons for a specific reason. When, when I suspect someone of being an antinomian, I like to find a sermon um, either from Galatians 5, Romans 6, or uh, Romans 13 and see what they have to say about it. Generally speaking, they're going to skirt some very important issues or not, or not even preach on the passage at all. And that's precisely what goes on here. Now, here's where this all starts. Let me read what... Chavichin presents as his has his text for his preaching today. This is Romans six. What was, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we still live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now that's where Chavijan stops. Here's where the rest of the passage goes. Probably this most important part of the passage here. What then? Are we to sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Paul's driving the point home here. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Remember, St. Paul is talking to Jews here. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time for the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that's the passage, and it's not complicated, friends. What St. Paul is teaching here, he just got done preaching the free gift of the gospel. And what we sinful men like to do with stuff like that is pervert it. And and St. Paul, St. Peter, St. James, the entire New Testament warns of this. The entire scriptures warn of this. That when God gives mercy, we take advantage of it. The, the whole entire history of Israel is wrought with this. And St. Paul is warning that, yes, God's mercy abounds but don't take advantage of the mercy don't use it use it as an opportunity for sin saint peter will tell us and that's exactly what saint paul is preaching here he is saying you that's dead living see when saint paul speaks of death the only complicated thing here is this whole death and life thing see when i walk around sinning doing destructive things to my neighbor hurting god my father displeasing him with my disobedience hurting myself and crucifying Jesus, I'm living a dead life. And this is precisely what St. Paul is speaking of here and warning of. Nothing more, nothing less. But this is not what we're going to hear from Chivijan. Again, he left out the meat of this passage, which is the second half of Romans 6. And this is, you'll find, I've been astonished to find this time after time from men like Chivijan, who hold to a theology that's akin to Gerhard Forde and these guys we've been talking about. And again, the reason I'm warning you guys about this is because you may see some of this going on, you know, especially if you're a Lutheran, but if you're checking out the Lutheran faith, I want you to know we're not perfect. We've got some problems here. And this is one I see is very, very dangerous. And I want you to have a heads up about it. So let's get to Javitian's sermon. And we'll see what I'm talking about. So, as I mentioned, Paul spends the first three chapters giving us bad news. He tells us that no matter how good or bad you think you are, you're guilty. You are unrighteous. You're far worse than you think you are. He makes it very, very, very clear in those chapters that we are, we're in trouble. All of us are in trouble. And he doesn't just describe people in trouble as rule breakers and rebellious people. He says all of us 
whether we think we're rule keepers or rule breakers, as I mentioned, whether we think we're religious or irreligious, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter who we are, where we've come from, what we've done or failed to do. It doesn't matter. We're all guilty. And he wants us to feel at the end of chapter three, this weight. He wants us to feel the hammer of God coming down and announcing over the entire human race, you're guilty because he wants us to feel our desperation. Because we won't understand what he begins to tell us in chapter 4, 5, and here chapter 6 if we're not first absolutely on our back with no way out but up. Because it's those who are on their back with no way out but up. It's those who are at the absolute end of themselves who can see and hear good news and who can understand God's grace. So after the first three chapters, he spends two chapters telling us of the radically free rescue of God in chapter 4 and chapter 5 that Jesus has done it all, paid it all, removed our guilt, and forever set things right between us and God. And he ends chapter 5, if you remember from last week, by saying something that is remarkably scandalous. He says, essentially, where there is a lot of sin, there is even more grace. Okay, let's hold up right there, because I want, I want you to recall last week we talked about when Chavidjan talks about sin, this is, this is an old evangelical trick. They talk about brokenness. This is what they do at the seeker-sensitive churches. They don't talk about you being a sinner who has done destruction to your neighbor, hurt God, hurt yourself, and put Jesus on the cross. They don't talk about sin in these terms. They talk about it in these vagaries, like you're guilty. That's a vagary. That's an abstraction. It's not specific to the weight of the situation. He talks about the hammer, the judgment of God coming down. If he wants that for people, if they want to be terrified at the wrath of God, because that's what we deserve for all of the destructive, death-dealing things that we've done to each other and to God, then you've got to get specific about these things. But he talks about it in these vagaries and these abstractions like we're broken, and that doesn't cut it because... Brokenness makes it sound like something happened to us that really wasn't our fault. It was out of our control. There was nothing we could do about it. No, we did these things to ourselves. Our situation is nobody's fault but our own. And we are all in this situation. He's correct about that. But at the same time, we have to realize that the onus is on us. We did something wrong. Something very, very wrong. And that's what sin is. Okay, so just keep that in mind as we go through here. Now, some people have misinterpreted that and said, and we'll see here in just a second, beginning in chapter 6, some people misinterpret that and go, Paul's encouraging people to sin. He's not encouraging anything. He's simply stating a fact, a fact that has saved your life, a fact that has saved my life, the fact that where there is a lot of sin, there is even more grace. That's good news, and that because of Jesus' finished work for us, we can never, ever, ever out-sin the coverage of God's love and forgiveness. That's what he wants us to know. All right. That is misleading. And the the scriptures don't preach this way. We could never, ever out-sin the coverage of God's love and forgiveness. Yes, that is, is true in a sense. But it's misleading. Again, think of my addict friends. 
And, and there were many of them. I don't know many of them. There were a few of them we lost. A few of them we lost. Who just went back out on the street and we never heard from them again. It was sad. It hurt us. We knew they were hurting as well. But they walked away from the church. And there's no, there's not a shred of scripture uh, that you can that you can show me in in the context of, of the scope of scripture that would say that that person it, it, that there's a one saved always say that person is apostate they've walked away from the faith because of their sin they would rather live in their sin than live free in the gospel okay that's that's the most stark example I can give of it so so yes we want to announce the free gift of God. But we also want to warn, as the scriptures do all over the place, I'm sorry, friends, this is the way they t- they speak. Go read them. Paul warns of this all over the place. St. Peter, St. James, all of them, St. John, they all warn of this. And so, to speak this way, while in a sense it is true, it's misleading. And, and it's not helpful. What he needs to do is be clear about what God's grace does and doesn't do. And so to talk about, oh, you can't outsend God's grace um, is misleading. And this is precisely why Paul is speaking the way he's speaking in Romans 6. It's, it, he, he is anticipating an argument, but he already knows Israel's history. He knows this is what they do with God's grace. They abuse it. They use it as a license to sin. And he knows this is human nature. And he's going to warn of this. And that's what he's doing here. Okay, so it's a little piece there. At the end of chapter 5. And then this chapter opens with the question that naturally comes when God's grace is preached with the kind of radical freedom that Paul delivers here. I mean... Okay, what he's getting ready to say is just completely not true. And I just addressed that. What he's getting ready... The reason... (laughs) The reason St. Paul addresses this in Romans 6 and in all kinds of other places is because he knows human nature. (laughs) It's not because uh, he's going to be accused of being an antinomian, which is what Tolian's getting ready to say, and I'll address that then. Barking up the wrong tree here. He has said some pretty radical stuff, some remarkably counterintuitive stuff. He's made it pretty clear that this whole thing is riding on the shoulders of another one who succeeded where we failed, one who was perpetually good where we are continually bad. He goes on to tell us in chapter 4 and 5 by pointing us back to both Abraham, pointing us back to Adam, pointing us back to the beginning of time, and showing us essentially that God has always been in the business of meeting sin with salvation. Okay, most of what he said there in those last few sentences is true. It's true. And this is what I think is attractive about Chavichin's preaching and preaching like it is, especially if you're coming out of the evangelical circles or maybe even coming out of the, the liberal circles, who knows. But you hear preaching like that, you don't hear the gospel presented. That's, that, is a, that is a major problem in, in pop evangelicalism. You don't hear the gospel presented. All you hear is law. And sometimes it's bad law. Sometimes it's good law. But a lot of times it's bad law, and then you never hear the gospel. And so to hear a guy talk about how how sin is met with salvation is music to your ears. Because you have been crushed by the law. You know that you have 
been dealing death your entire life and destroying people around you with your sin and you deserve God's wrath. You know that. And you want you need the gospel. You need to know that that God doesn't just oh well blow it off. No, you know your sin deserves justice. Somebody has to pay for your sin. Somebody has to be punished for it. You know that. And then when you hear the gospel like this, you're like, whoa, I've never heard this before. <laughs> and so you latch onto it. I get it. And, and I think that's what's attractive about his preaching. He kind of throws in these nuggets of gospel here and there. And, and, and sometimes he'll flat out preach the gospel very beautifully. Unfortunately, it carries no weight because his, his law preaching is so fantastically terrible that his gospel preaching might as well not even happen. All right? Because he's trying to preach all gospel. And I'll show you that he... He'll proclaim that in this sermon. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Let's continue. He's always been in the business of meeting guilt with grace. Always, always, always. And so, of course, the people reading this would essentially, and he anticipates this. He knows what questions are coming into their minds. He anticipates this, and he says, essentially, I know what you're thinking. Given everything I've just said to you, I know what you're thinking. Well, This is a great deal. I mean, if there is nothing we can do to outsin the coverage of God's love and forgiveness, if this whole thing is riding on Jesus and not me, if this whole thing is about his performance for me and not my performance for him, his obedience for me and not my obedience for him, if that's what this whole enterprise is about, then shouldn't we just go out sinning even more? Because you just said, Paul, that where there is a lot of sin, there's a lot of grace. We like, or there's even more grace. We want more grace. So maybe we should go out sinning more and more and more and more. Okay, so this is where it would be great if a preacher would really define for us what he's talking about. So when we're talking about justification and salvation, the law was never meant for that. Nathan and I talked about that. The law is never meant for that. Never. Adam and Eve are given law in the garden. They are not in need of salvation. The law shows us how we were created to live. That's what the law is for. And so when we talk about justification and sanctification, it's important you make those distinctions, pastors. Especially for us laymen who are easily confused. Because when we listen to something like this, we just don't understand why it is that, that we obey the law. And this is precisely what this passage is talking about. This is what St. Paul wants to address at this point. He wants to shift gears from justification and talk about sanctification here. And he mentions that. You remember, I read the rest of the passage. Righteousness leading to sanctification. It's precisely what he says. He uses that word, that term. Okay. So, so it's important that pastors make that distinction. That yes, salvation is completely riding on the shoulders of Jesus. We cannot contribute a thing to it. But again, it is misleading, especially when he's addressing a passage like Romans 6, to talk about how obedience isn't a part of the Christian life. Friends, if you want, if you are a Christian, obedience is part of the deal. Knowing and obeying God's commands is required. Not for salvation, But it is required. Part of the Christian life is obedience and discipline, and it's difficult. It's not easy. We talked about this last week, and I get that. And that's why something I completely missed about Chavichin and his preaching is that 
he's trying to preach a Christianity that does not exist. It doesn't correspond to reality. We talked about that in the opening. It does not correspond to reality. Because obedience to God's commands, while we're here on this earth in particular, with when we're still dragging the sinful nature around, is difficult. It's hard stuff. It's self-sacrificial. Sacrificing yourself is hard. Jesus, it was not easy for Jesus. It was painful. Okay. Hopefully you're getting my point here. So, for, so in other words, the, he's confusing law and gospel here because he's confusing sanctification and justification. Romans 6 is about sanctification, not justification. And when he completely cuts the obedience piece out, it's confusing. See? Confused law and gospel. All right? So I wanted to point that out. Our obedience does not contribute to our salvation. He's correct about that. But he's preaching on Romans 6. So obedience is part of the picture. This is what he should be preaching on, and he's not so far. Sounds like a great deal. Okay? He anticipates this question um, and he's basically saying something here in response that blows our mind and I want to get to that in a second because he does something really interesting here in response to that question Um, but I'll get to that in a moment let me just say this okay let me this is I've been waiting for this passage okay I've literally been waiting for this passage I love this passage I love all passages but I really like this one Because what it reminds me of is that throughout history, including Jesus and Paul, okay, throughout history, um, those who have been stubbornly, myopically committed to preaching the gospel without butts and breaks, footnotes and qualifications, have been charged, accused of preaching lawlessness throughout history. Okay, throughout history, people like Jesus, people like Paul were accused because of the things that they said, because of the radical things that they said regarding the one-way love of God, people accuse them, through, uh, people accuse them, and throughout history, as I'll show in a second, people have been accusing people like that for preaching lawlessness. Pre- I mean, Paul, interestingly, okay, Jesus... Paul, Martin Luther, you name it. Isn't it interesting that none of them were ever accused of being legalists? None of them. None of them were ever accused of preaching legalism. They were regularly accused of preaching lawlessness. Actually, Luther was accused of legalism uh, by a guy named uh, Agricola. He was in a dispute with... Agricola had given a sermon about how the, the law has no no place in the church. Now, this is not the extreme Tolian Tuvichin has gone to. He still preaches somewhat of the law. I just didn't preach all of it. Uh, but Agricola said, you know, we don't we don't need the law at all in the church. And, and here's uh, from Holger Sontag's uh, translation of the Antinomian Disputations. Here's what he says in the preface of that uh, in in relation to this this disputation between Agricola and Luther. In November, however, strife erupted again. Agricola wrote a letter to Luther in which he criticized him for teaching two manners of justification, one through the law and faith, the other through the gospel alone. Agricola asked Luther to say which was the true way. Okay, so there's there's Agricola uh, via Sontag for us, uh, telling us that Luther was accused of being a legalist. It happened. 
So this this whole notion, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this, because Shavichin's getting ready to get on his high horse. Now, notice he's not preaching the passage. He's getting ready to, to, to wax rhapsodic on antinomianism and how he gets accused of antinomianism and how he shouldn't be accused of antinomianism and so on and so forth. Let's listen and we'll, we'll pick through it. I mean, this is why the Pharisees hated Jesus. I mean, okay, that's not, that is absolutely not true. The reason, the reason the Pharisees hated Jesus is because they hated God. Here's the scary thing about the Pharisees. They knew Jesus was the Messiah and yet they rejected him. They hated Jesus because Jesus was claiming to be God, and they didn't want God around. They had their own God. The reason the Pharisees hated Jesus is not because he uh, preached antinomianism. That's there, You can't find any evidence for that whatsoever. The only place you might go uh, uh, to that effect is the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus starts that right off. And so, I mean, he's before he's even really gotten in any, into any real disputes with anybody. He starts right off and to say, "Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophet, or don't think that I've come to abolish the law." In fact, none of the law will pass away," he says. So, you can maybe make an argument there that that Jesus is uh, has been preaching some antinomian stuff, and that's why the Pharisees are mad at him. But for the most part, the reason the Pharisees are angry with Jesus is because he's claiming to be the Messiah, and they're not ready for the Messiah to come on the scene yet. They still, you know. They've got a pretty sweet deal going with the Roman government and their own thing. So, okay, yeah, just not true. He was such a rabble rouser, you know? If the things he was saying were true, everything was going to fall through the cracks. All of the control that they had successfully established would fall through the cracks because in the minds of most people, this whole thing is about morality, This whole thing is about cleaning up your bad behavior. And if you talk about grace this way, if you talk about unconditional love this way, people are going to have no reason whatsoever to clean up their act. Okay, again, he's speaking on Romans 6. Supposed to be. Has yet really to address the passage. And he's 13 minutes into the sermon here. He should be talking about cleaning up your act. That is part of the Christian life. It's not the whole thing, and it's not the central thing, but it is part of the Christian life, friends. We are expected to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You cannot read Holy Scripture and not get this. You can't read Romans 6 and not understand that this is what St. Paul expects, that we stop sinning and start obeying the commands. Not for salvation. But because this is how we, how we were meant to live, this is what we were created for. And so, for him to speak this way when he's supposed to be speaking on Romans 6 is confusing. Because it makes it sound like, while he says, doesn't exactly come out and say this, what it, what, it, what it sound like, okay, so I'm a layman sitting in the pew, and what I'm hearing him say is that obedient, there's obedience and cleaning up your act, that, that has nothing to do with Christianity. Nothing whatsoever. Morality, there's no... Nothing. That, that 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 none of that stuff has to do with Christianity. Yes, it does. All of that stuff, cleaning up your act, keep fruit, bearing fruit, and keeping with with repentance, um, obey obedience to the commands, morality, living a moral, ethical life, is part of the Christian life. You cannot you cannot read the Bible and, and not see this. 
Okay? So, uh, his language here is very sloppy and confusing. And so, throughout history, people have been accused, people who have been stubbornly committed to preaching the gospel without butts and breaks have been charged, accused with preaching lawlessness. The word antinomian, okay, it's a big word, but the word antinomian is a word that Martin Luther coined, and it literally means anti-law. Okay, sure, maybe Luther coined this phrase. He he didn't really. Um, Actually, it's right here in this passage, in uh, verse 19. The word for lawlessness in this passage, in Greek, now listen to this, think antinomian, against the law, or without law. Here's the Greek word. Anomian. I mentioned this a couple of weeks when in my when uh, Nathan and I were chatting. Anomian. I think Saint Paul coined this term. I think Saint Paul knew the the human heart is wicked and corrupt above all things, and they, he, would, he would take something like something beautiful like the gospel and hopeful and twist it into something terrible and evil and use it for licentiousness. And so I think Saint Paul coined this term. That that's the Greek word for lawlessness. Anomian, antinomian, anomian. <laughs> kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? Okay, but yes, Luther did, I suppose, coin this term in a sense or bring it back into usage in his disputes with Agricola, who was saying the law had no place in the church. Now again, Chavichin doesn't go to that extreme. He still tries to preach second use, which doesn't work, <laughs> and we're and we're going to talk more about that later. But uh, but he doesn't go to that extreme, but. Yes, Luther invented this term because he was accusing somebody of it. He wasn't being accused of it. Uh, I mean, there are some places where there were uh, disputes between the papists and the Lutherans over, you know, what's the role of the law? And we've got many, many passages in our confessions that talk about what the role of the law is in the life of the believer. And the law does have a role, a positive role in the life of the believer. It's to be read and obeyed. We're to embrace it as how we were created to be. All right. So, I mean, our, our confessions are full of this sort of thing. He's just proving it out here. So let, let's continue on. Word for law, the Greek word for law, anti, it really means anti-law. And an antinomian is someone who basically says that God's law has no place in the life of a Christian. That once someone has been saved by God's grace, God's law is completely irrelevant. And there have been some throughout history who've taught this, okay, who have preached this, but there have been lots of people, lots and lots and lots of people, including Jesus, Paul, Luther, me, good company, who have been called antinomians because they preach grace alone. Okay, that is the height of hubris there, to to put yourself on that plane. That's not, not a place that one gets to put himself just because he's been accused of antinomianism. Now, again, when Luther brought this term antinomian back into usage, really straight from St. Paul, like we said, from Romans 6, he was debating a man called Agricola, who was an antinomian. Luther called him an antinomian. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because it's this has nothing to do with this passage. Nothing. He is not preaching the passage at this point. And again, he's going to go on with this 
for another five minutes, which is going to put him 20 minutes into the sermon, and he's not even dealt with the passage yet. But essentially what he's saying is that the way he preaches, since he's being accused of antinomianism, well, then that means his preaching is right. No, sorry, that's not the deal. He's even going to cite Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. And if Martin Lloyd-Jones meant what Tolian thinks he meant, well, Lloyd-Jones was wrong. But I can assure you nobody ever called Martin Lloyd-Jones an antinomian. I mean, if that was his litmus test for proper preaching, he never got accused of that. You throw this term around, and and here he is. He's up here defending himself, and he's he's really just distracting from the main point. So what I want to do is I want to move on and show you how Tolian is an antinomian because he doesn't preach the law in its full force. Two things he does in his sermons, and this is virtually all of his sermons. This is thematic throughout his preaching. There's no warnings or threats, first use of the law. There's no instruction in the law. And again, you cannot read Holy Scripture and and come to this conclusion. St. Paul instructs in the law all over the place. He's doing it right here, which is what Tolian should be doing. He should be telling his people in general that they should not continue to live destructive lives. They're not going to continue to be these people who have destroyed themselves and everyone around them, incurring God's wrath and putting Jesus on the cross. That's what he should be preaching. We're not to be these kinds of people anymore. Because we've been raised from death to life. And that's what Chavichin should be preaching on. Instead, he's preaching on himself and trying to vindicate himself from the accusations of antinomian. And he simply can't do it because A, he doesn't preach the law in its full sternness. And B, um, he uh, he doesn't call sinners to repentance. He wants the gospel preached to unrepentant sinners. That's his solution to it. So if you're misbehaving, the answer is not to preach the law, but to preach the gospel. And that, my friends, is a version of antinomianism. Sorry, you don't have to reject the entire law out of hand, as Agricola did, in order to be an an antinomian and say it has no place in the life of the Christian like our our extreme hyper-grace friends do. You can eliminate certain points of the law that make you an antinomian. He's shaving off the sharp edges of the law, the hard parts of it, which is, you know, really as Christians, the hard part of the law is we're called to obey it. And we're going to see that. And that's what I want to get to next. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit because he keeps going on this diatribe for for a bit. Uh, But I want to get really to what the meat of this sermon is. And it's an hour long sermon, which really could be encapsulated to about five minutes. And I'm going to show you that five minutes while we have, have some time left here. So let's get to that. Um, But what's so ironic is that I preach the law every week. Not the cheap version, like, you know, be nice to people, but the real version, be perfect. Because that's the only thing God accepts. The only thing that gets you to God is perfection. Believing that God accepts anything smaller than the perfect righteousness of Jesus. Believing that God accepts anything smaller than Christ's perfection is a version of cheap law. Um, So in fact, I mean, my, my goal every week is to use God's law, his demands, his unwavering, unqualified demands to show you that you're a lot worse than you think you are because only then will you be open to the grace that God offers. Um, if you hear out there that Tullian is an antinomian, hopefully now you'll have some, 
you know, uh, recourse of action to say that's simply not true. This is really the end of his diatribe, and he now he's exhorting his people to go out there and defend him that he's not an antinomian. The reason people accuse, and the reason I say that Tolian Chavichin is an antinomian, and that his basic problem, and the problem I have with him coming out with this Tolian.net thing and putting all of these sermons back up there, is because he does not preach obedience. That's why he gets accused of this. And he always brings up the point of God demands perfection. Yes, that's true in justification. And we've already covered this a bit. But Paul is talking about sanctification here. He uses that term. I think in a, in a distinct way, theologians have picked up on this to make this distinction between justification and sanctification. And Tolian does not speak about what the Christian life is supposed to be in, in specific ways. And we're going to see later on here that when it comes to people who are living licentious lives, his answer to them is to preach the gospel to them. That will turn their lives around. And it is clear in Holy Scripture that that is not, that is not the case. It's clear if you go read Walther, you Lutherans, that unrepentant sinners, sinners who are comfortable in their sins, are not to have the gospel preached to them. And when you don't preach the law as something to be obeyed, then it loses its sting. Now, let's talk about this impossibility thing. We've Thank goodness we have Sontag who, have, who has translated the antinomian disputations for us because this is coming in pretty handy here. Because one of the things he addressed was this question. We are not obligated to do the impossible. The law is impossible. Therefore, we are not obligated to do it. This is what Chavichin is talking about. And Luther's answer to this follows. It is said improperly, that is, not rightly and not fittingly, that we are obliged to do what is impossible by the law. When Adam was first created, the law was for him not only something possible, but even something enjoyable. Notice here very carefully that the law was in place and Adam obeyed it easily and enjoyably. The law was there. He was already, he had no need of salvation. So it just shows you that God's law is eternal and is not meant for salvation. That's one point that Luther's making here. He rendered the obedience the law required with all his will and with gladness of heart and did so perfectly. Yet what now, after the fall, is impossible, is not is so not by the fault of the law, but by our fault. It is not the fault of the one binding, but of the one sinning. Hence this statement, the law urges us to do what is impossible, needs to be understood fittingly. For if you want to preserve the strict sense of the words, it sounds as if God himself is being accused of burdening us with the impossible law. Yet it is sin and Satan who made the possible and enjoyable law impossible and terrifying who are to be accursed. See, when Chavichin says that the law is impossible, and that's what he's implying by saying that God only accepts perfection when it comes to sanctification. That's what he's really addressing here. I'm convinced of that, and that's why he's an antinomian. Because we're talking sanctification here. We're not talking justification. 
He's talking about how we conduct our lives. Or he should be. That's what this passage covers. And so when he speaks in these ways, he is joining the chorus of Satan and his demons and saying, the law is impossible for you. And it's something you don't want to do. It's icky. It's gross. You don't want to follow the law. And in fact, you cannot. That's the forces of darkness speaking, Satan and his demons, according to Luther in this passage. Luther continues, Christ, however, by willingly submitting himself to the law and enduring all its curses, earned for those who believe in him the Spirit, being driven by whom they also in this life begin to fulfill the law. And in the life to come, the most joyful and perfect obedience will be within them so that they will do in body and soul as now do the angels. When Tolian speaks of the law, he speaks of it in a way that makes it sound completely negative, like it's a terrible thing for us to do to act ethically and be good people, live good lives toward one another. And when he speaks of these sorts of things, he does it in vagaries and abstractions. Luther says that's this kind of talk is of the devil. This is antinomian. That's exactly what Luther's addressing here. Antinomianism. And he addresses Chavichin very specifically here. So the accusation that Chavichin has received of being an antinomian is not without foundation. Because when we're talking about sanctification, that's the point I think people were trying to make to him over and over and over again, is that obedience to God's commands and Holy Scripture, once we are regenerate Christians, is required. Required. This is something that Christians will do, must do, should do, must discipline themselves, suffer, self-sacrifice for. But yet, he wants to dismiss that out of hand and just say, well, the only thing that God accepts is perfect obedience. That, according to Luther in this passage, is the voice of the devil and his angels. Okay, (laughs) getting a little fired up here. Let's continue on with this thing. Maybe the best test of orthodoxy, because if people aren't walking away going, hold on a second, you probably haven't preached it in all of the radicality that it's presented here. Well, Paul knows what he has said in chapter 4 and 5, and he knows it's so radical and so counterintuitive that some will hear it as an invitation to go nuts. And so he anticipates this question. And he says, when he, when he poses this question, what shall we say then? Uh, shall we sin more so that grace may abound? Notice what he says first. He says, no way. No way. That, that, that it, no, that is not what I'm saying. You may be thinking that's what I'm saying, but that is not what I'm saying. And then you would expect him to do something very, very different than what he actually does. You would expect him to kind of back off, bring some balance into the equation, okay? He doesn't do that. And we'll see what he does here in a second. You like that, don't you, Zach? Yeah, it's funny. You're the only one, but... Um, The way he answers his own question is incredibly instructive for us, and it gives us insight into the transforming power of the gospel of grace. Because I would imagine that it would have been very tempting for Paul, as it is with us when we're dealing with licentious people, to put the brakes on grace and give some law here. But he doesn't do it. He actually goes deeper into the gospel here. 
Okay, I read the passage to you to start the podcast. St. Paul, now, he presents some very beautiful gospel truth here, uh, talking about baptism, which we all Lutherans should have memorized, (laughs) because it's in the catechism. But what Paul actually does here, while he is reminding us of our baptism and the gospel, he is switching to law. He is saying, now look, don't think that you know you should go out and sin so grace may abound. Don't think that you are to go out and to sin because you're not under a law, but under grace. He puts the brakes on it big time. He doesn't bring balance to it. He switches to the law to make pe- make sure that people, us sinful, wicked human beings who tend to take beautiful gifts of God and twist them into terrible things, understand that this is not what he's saying. That in fact, that this gift, this free gift of the gospel is going to transform us into live people and live people do uh, obey the law. They obey the commands of Holy Scripture. This is what alive people do. Dead people don't do this. They continue to destroy and kill and murder and disobey, so on and so forth. That's precisely what St. Paul is doing here. And Chavichin is missing it. And he's not even expositing, he's not he's not exegeting the passage. He just he's just making this assertion. Paul takes us deeper into the gospel. And I've been astonished that when I've listened to antinomian after antinomian preach this passage, this is precisely what they do. They say, Oh, Paul is just taking us deeper into the gospel here. When we ask this, should we sin more so that grace may abound. Paul takes us deeper into the gospel. No, he doesn't. He preaches the law here. This is precisely what's happening. He is reminding us of our baptism to be sure, to to say, to make the connection between the two. But he is preaching law here, and that's exactly what Chavichin should be preaching, and he's not. Let's get a little bit more here. We're just about out of time. In other words... He sees the answer to this question. He sees the answer to this question as being, we need to go deeper into the gospel, not walk away from it. If this is what you think I'm saying, it's not that you get the gospel too much. It's that you get it too little. And so I have to press it in even further. Um, I mean, he just doesn't answer this question by backing off the gospel of grace. He answers it by driving the gospel of grace even deeper in a more profound way. I mean, most of us assume, okay, this is just the way we think. Most of us assume that championing ethics will make us more ethical. Most of us assume that preaching obedience will make us more obedient. That's the answer. We live... You know, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. A wretched man that I am, Paul says, who will save me from this body of death. Blah, blah, blah. We see it throughout the Bible. And therefore, I need to preach cleanliness. How do we deal with, how do I deal with the uncleanliness in your life and the uncleanliness in my life? I'll just preach cleanliness to me. How has that ever worked with your children? You know? Okay, and that's precisely why I've got to close it off here, the folks. But that's why Chavichin is accused of being an antinomian, and that's why he is an antinomian. Because you don't preach gospel 
to lawless people. You don't preach gospel to those who are licentious. You don't preach gospel to those who are unclean. You preach the law to them, show them that they're unclean and that they're in need of a savior, and then bid them to keep fruit in, uh, to keep fruit in repentance. That's how the scripture describes this. That's how the Lutheran confessions describe it. That's how Luther describes it. You do preach cleanliness, if you want to put it that way. You do preach cleaning up your act to people. And this is why his law preaching is completely deficient. Because he's not calling people to repentance. See, when you make this stuff real, when you say what you're doing is destructive... And it's destroying everyone around you, yourself, and it's it's offensive to God so much that it's incurred his wrath. You've declared war on him. When you don't preach the law this way, your law preaching is deficient. When you you preach the law as, the law is this, and it must be perfectly done, or just forget it. That is not proper law preaching. That is not how the scriptures preach the law. And that's why the charge of antinomian for him stands anyway we got to go for this week i think we've set the table here we're going to continue on this uh because uh this man has come back on the scene and has put all of his sermons from coral ridge back up on the internet and this was the core problem with his behavior keep that in mind all right we'll see you next week hey preacher man give me the gospel it brings salvation to those who believe. Hey, preacher man, give me the gospel. Tell me I'm a sinner and Christ died for me. I don't want to know about what you did last week on your summer vacation. What you saw, where you went, or how much it cost. Instead, won't you tell me